0: Our first reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses one to 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The second reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: My text today is from Titus chapter 2, verses uh, 11 to 15, and verse 13 in particular. You'll see it on the top of page 8, and it's in bold goes like this. Paul writes to Titus, and we listen in, we're eavesdropping. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Here it is. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things, Titus, you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for drawing us here this morning and for bringing us together here and online and for uniting us in the blessed hope we have in Jesus, and for speaking to us now. So, Father, speak to us now, by the power of your Holy Spirit. May grace disciple us, as we wait well. Amen. So, here we are, Moffat's. (laughs) Uh, Six weeks of long service leave, including Christmas with Laurel's mom, M-O-M, in Baton Rouge. And then one week of forced exile in New York City. Just so you know, we had a great holiday, ducking and weaving from LA to Baton Rouge and then up to New York, trying to avoid Omicron. Many of you have been trying to avoid Omicron. We didn't. In the very last week, it got all of us, all six of us. Uh, So you know, we had very mild symptoms, um, like many of you. We were given accommodation in Queens with friends, old friends of Laurel's from college. We availed ourselves of the New York COVID testing system. And we even went to see Hamilton when out of isolation. I'm going to refer to Hamilton twice in this message. So not too bad, really. All of us waiting for six negative PCRs, waiting to come home, the negatives came on Thursday morning, and we flew out uh, Thursday night, and flew in yesterday morning. Here we are. Thank you for those who prayed for us. There you go. Oh. Thank you for those who prayed for us. And I'm very thankful for Robert Forsyth, his locum, for Emma you know, running, for Rowan, for the whole team, for all of those who uh, really filled in for us the whole time away, and especially this extra week So, we had to wait, it's as simple as that. We had to wait for the hope of COVID leaving our system. We had to wait for the blessed hope of a negative result and our return. Now, while trivial in a world of suffering, because there's lots of suffering in the world and we didn't experience it last week, while trivial, the week got me thinking about some simple truths about waiting. That is the power embedded in powerless waiting. It's ironic, don't you think? And what you can learn by this gift of waiting and a few other lessons I want to share with you today that I could gather in the time that I had, hence nothing on the screen, no flashy lights, just a word I hope that is helpful for you, perhaps a word from above. We're gonna do this as we continue our summer series introducing the theme of 2022, God's transforming grace. Rob said it last week, it will be our theme, focus, and delight in 2022. Our text for uh, summer is uh, Titus 2, 11 through 15, as I read a moment ago, starting one verse a week. It seems fitting for a summer series. Paul writes in verse 12 that grace teaches us something. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and yes, to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, and here's our verse, while we wait. For the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grace appeared then. The glory of our great God and Saviour will appear in the future. And so, therefore, grace teaches us something. And it's not a cognitive lesson. It's a life lesson. Grace teaches. Grace schools us, even when it's hard. Grace disciples us. Grace forms something in us. It chisels out of the hardness of our hearts, something beautiful, something wonderful. Grace teaches us to say no to what Paul calls ungodliness, not being like God, or um, worldly passions, doing what you want to do because it feels good. Grace disciples us to live differently, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I need you to listen to the last two talks from Robert Forsyth. They are online, and they form the important context for today's message. But if grace teaches us, where then is the classroom? The arena of this teaching, all teaching happens in a classroom, where's the classroom? And Paul's answer is, this present age is the classroom, while we wait. And the word while there, at the beginning of verse 13, is important. We're not twiddling thumbs in this present age, please know, or just trying to get the most out of life now, come to that, we do something while we in the meanwhile, and it's about character. Now, they're here today, I hope they don't mind me saying this, watching our kids in New York City wait was hard for me. Uh, Now, Time in New York, you know, that's great. Uh, But, you know, kids with the last days of summer, with their friends, want to come home and enjoy those last days with their friends. And I offer this, this advice, which dads try to do and kids sometimes listen, it's called a lecture. I said, how you wait matters. That is, if you are consumed with simply thoughts of getting on the plane, of merely fixing the problem, then you won't live well right here now with what God has got for us. Now, I don't mean, you know, have fun in New York City, I mean you won't learn something about character and you might end up being consumed rather than loving or learning patience or deepening your trust in God. And you'll also sort of perhaps scramble. When's the next test? We've got to go and do it. Trying to change things. Scrambling out of fear is how people go all superstitious. And you'll find very intelligent Westerners becoming pagans as they cross their fingers and touch wood. Author Paul Tripp writes, your heart is always exposed by the way you wait. So who you become while you wait is as important to the soul as receiving the thing you wait for. Now, can I say that again? It's so important. Because the temptation is to think, the one thing I want is to receive the thing I'm waiting for. But let me say it again. Who you become while you wait is as important to the soul as receiving the thing that you wait for. That is, when the big thing finally happens, what kind of person will you have become? What will have been formed in you because you waited well? or as the New Testament says, what kind of people ought we to be if we had this future. Climate change is an interesting example, or maybe an illustration, a negative one. In all my conversations in the matter of climate change, and I have many, I am struck by how little dialogue there is, at least not yet anyway, not in my experience, how little dialogue there is about what kind of people we might be or become. If the worst predictions were to come true. Almost all the conversations I have are about arresting it and fixing it, which makes sense. Right? If there's something we can do, we do it. But almost all of it is about calling for political action or calling out political inaction, and I'm all for it, but it does assume a level of power. It assumes the power to stop it, and I note that this mind of fixing it is often accompanied by the social tools needed to, for action to happen, like shaming and blaming and mocking and belittling and finger pointing. I don't think that's controversial to say, I think it's a fact. Look at the memes. In the Bible, bad living environments were the old normal oppression, scarcity, famine, war. Now, not the same thing as global warming, but they're There are examples there of such a thing. Habakkuk saw disaster ahead with the exile of Babylon to Israel for their sin, and he famously said in Habakkuk 3, listen to this, he said, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, like total scarcity, yet I will rejoice now in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He makes my feet go to the heights, now. Now, I think that's a verse we ought to keep pondering in our world today, and it was ever thus. Habakkuk, in chapter 2 of the prophecy, was told to wait for God. There will be an end, and He will bring it. Though it linger, wait for it. In the New Testament, the world had gone pear-shaped under oppression and persecution. And since the world had gone pear-shaped, the answer for the believer is to wait, living good lives among the pagans, for missional reasons. I'll show you in a moment. So Peter wrote in our first reading a moment ago, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert, awake, and of sober mind, so that you can simply pray. See that? Overall, you must love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins, offer hospitality, serve, speak. For Paul, in Titus chapter 2, you do this behaviour while you wait, so that, in every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. So you live well for missional reasons. I asked a climate change extremist recently, Is it legitimate to spend this time now raising disciples who will be amazing citizens if the worst happens, whatever the worst might be? Is it legitimate, not as the only thing, like it's not a zero-sum game, is it legitimate to raise disciples or children who will become or who will be patient even if the worst happens, patient now? Joyful, even if the worst happens, which means joyful now. Caring for others, even if the worst happens. Sharing, even in scarcity. Praying to God and reading their Bibles and gathering with their believers as they are able. When the big thing finally happens, what kind of person will you be? Now, I'm not talking about climate change here. I'm talking about the appearing of our great God and Saviour. Jesus asked this profound question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's a legitimate question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Yes, the answer. Two questions as we look at these verses. What are you waiting for? Verse 13. And how will you wait? Verses 11 and 12. What are you waiting for? And how will you wait? First, what are you waiting for? If you believe what Paul is telling Titus here in chapter 2, you are waiting for what he calls the blessed hope. Blessed is the word here for well-being. We are waiting for the good, beautiful thing that God has prepared for those who love Him. That's it. You are waiting for the blessed hope, which speaks of a time after this present age. Now, that's clear, I hope. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and saviour Jesus Christ. One commentator writes, since blessed hope and glorious appearing are governed by the same article, they refer to the same event. In other words, the blessed hope is the appearing of our great God and saviour Jesus Christ. We've already had one blessedness, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, verse 11, but we're waiting for a second appearance. And this is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, it's been seven weeks since I've said this word. Verse 13 is gobsmacking. I missed that word. Did you read it? You didn't miss the grammar, did you? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Did you see it? What can we say here? That the Apostle Paul, when considering Jesus, that same Jesus who gave himself up for us all, verse 14, Paul concluded that he is our great God and Saviour. That means that we can say with certainty, not just here but elsewhere, that the divinity of Jesus was a thing right out of the blocks of Christian history, not made up later. Don't believe all those people in the mid-20th century drawing on scholarship from the 19th century who said, it was all made up by monks to control people. People who say that, and I say this with love, they are ignorant. Paul here is not talking about two appearing, first, our great God and Saviour, and at the same time, our Saviour Jesus Christ, as though Paul missed a comma, as if there were commas in Greek, but... Mr. Comma, the appearing of the glory of our great God, Comma, and our great Savior, our Savior Jesus Christ. As I said, I went to see Hamilton in New York City, and there's a whole little dialogue about missing a comma. Angelica writes to Alexander Hamilton. I think you missed. A, got a comma? Is it my dearest Comma Angelica? Is that what it is? Did Paul make the same mistake as Alexander Hamilton? A grammar error? Now, there is debate about this verse, but I think it's a a debate that's been won. The sentence is clear that Jesus is our great God. And to sum up an argument that I read this week, one commentator said, to say it another way, if Paul did not believe that Jesus was God, it seems highly unlikely that he would have been so sloppy in making such a significant theological statement. Paul was not sloppy. If Paul did believe that Jesus was God, It is not a surprise to read this. Our hope, then, is not in Scott Morrison or in Joe Biden. Our hope is not in the end of the pandemic. Our hope is not in politics or innovation or education. Our hope isn't even in the children. Our hope is in an appearance on earth, one we don't control of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ. And we must be ready. Which leads me to my second and final question, How will you wait? And the first answer here, and elsewhere, is be ready for it. Some of us aren't ready. Some of you are asleep to God. You are unprepared. And it takes a level of humility and personal insight into your own heart to be able to say, actually, I'm pretty sure that's true of me. Jesus told us a parable in Matthew 25 to help us to have that sort of humility and insight. Now, in Matthew 25, there are clear cultural references relevant to their marriages, but the point is still profoundly relevant to us. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like, and that's a favorite construction of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like ten women waiting for a bridegroom, but not knowing the time. Five of them, Jesus says, are foolish. That is, they knew the bridegroom was coming, but they didn't factor in that it might take time. To call them simply unprepared is to say that they were just a bit forgetful or a little bit disorganized, which is no sin, right? I'm disorganized sometimes. The issue here is that they assumed by their choice... A short time in coming. Verse 3, the foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Because the bridegrooms appearing and took time, all fell asleep, although only half of them were ready, the other half not ready. As an aside, being asleep is one of the ways the Bible talks about Christians who are checked out, not thirsty. The old reformers used to call them sleepy Christians. They, said that they believed God will come. They believed in God. They believed in Christian morality. But they are asleep to him. They are disengaged. Your hopes are more real. Your fears are more alive than the hope we have in Jesus. You need to wake up, Paul says in Ephesians 5, and be ready. Amen? But here, in this parable, they're all asleep. <laughs> but only some are ready for the long haul. Verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones have no oil, and so they run off to the market to find it, and they find themselves shut out of the banquet. The wise ones, however, were ready, and they were brought into the feast. Jesus says they're the ones who know the bridegroom or 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 Jesus. And in verse 11, later the others said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us, But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. If you didn't bring enough oil, I don't know you. Jesus uh, concludes, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So how will you be ready? Well, be ready at all times. Sleepiness is a factor while you wait a long time. By the way, it's very important that the disciples were asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane because in many ways it describes the grace that comes because Christ died for even those who've fallen asleep. So if you are a sleepy Christian, I have good news for you, here today. I want you never to stop being ready for his return. Some of you might remember the old song, which is a prayer, remember this one? Give me oil in my lamp, keep it burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp, Keep me burning, keep me burning, do you remember it? Keep me burning, burning till the break of day. In other words, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is an opportunity this morning. Come forward and speak to me, or speak to Emma. Or speak to somebody who brought you, because we'd like to pray with you, or make an appointment with you, if you do not believe that you are ready. And then for those who are ready, Paul says, live a life for God. While we wait, grace chisels out in us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, right? To being not like God and then doing whatever you want to do. And it teaches us to say yes, or it chisels out in us, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now counts. In 2 Peter 3, verse 11, Peter asks the question directly, since everything ends in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? And then he answers the question, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. In 1 Peter 4, read to us a moment ago, the end of all things is near, therefore, therefore what? Therefore panic, therefore politic, therefore worry, no, therefore pray love, of hospitality, speak, serve with the strength God provides. It seems incongruous to have such a bland list to such a monumentous event. But it makes sense if you know God. You are to act now, in this present age, how you will act then, in the coming age. And that means you need to know, learn how you will act then. You need to know God. You need to know what the kingdom of God is about. You need to understand what God pleases God. Be now what you will be then. Ask yourself, what will the kingdom of God be like and act now in the way the world will be then? Such that waiting then is filled with action, here now. Restraint, for example, and intentional living. Restraint, no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And intentional living, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace was such a great word when I was a young man in my 18, 19, early 20s. It meant to me free gift with no strings attached, and I loved it. I still do. I became a grace junkie. Um, I remember a sermon where a preacher urged no to drunkenness, and uh, the response after that sermon amongst all these young people was, Hey man, where's the grace? There should be grace in this sermon. And although I was disposed to it, because I thought, you know, grace teaches us to say yes. You know, if the question was asked, should we sin that grace may abound, I had to struggle to find a reason why the answer was no. Now, the answer is no, but I, on one level, the gospel is so profoundly beautiful and counter-cultural, you might say yes to sinning that grace may abound. Paul says no, and he gives a reason for it. I knew enough even then to know that Grace did not mean a resounding yes to anything you wanted, but no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Poet W.H. Auden wrote this, he's putting the words in King Herod's mouth. He wrote, every crook will argue, I like committing crimes, God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. It's rubbish because of grace and what we're learning about grace through this series. No, we live now looking forward to the kingdom to come. C.S. Lewis, as always, is the master of images. He writes, I do not know why there is a difference, but I'm sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that there is good for her to wait. There's good in the waiting. When you do finally enter your room, you will find that the long wait has done you some kind of good that you had not had otherwise. The wait chiseled something out in you. But, and here's the key, you must not regard waiting as camping. Camping is when you say, ah, well, there's something to come, but I'm here in New York City, so I go to Hamilton and, you know, do the circle line. I'm camping. No, no, you're in the house now. You're in the kingdom now. You must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall, you must begin to obey the rules which are common to the whole house. And above all, you must be asking, which door is the true one? not which pleases you best by its paint and panelling. It's not camping. You are already in the house. It's not camping, happy now, doing whatever you want now. You are in the kingdom of God. You must obey the rules of the house and look for the one hope being offered, not be tempted by all the doors which please you. In the musical Hamilton uh, that we saw is a perfect example of a person who was tempted to enter the door by the one that best pleased him by its paint and panelling. US founding father Alexander Hamilton was tempted to say yes to ungodliness and to worldly passions in an affair with one Maria Reynolds. And there's a whole agonizing, strangely beautiful song, very human song, where Hamilton sings a song called Say No to This. Turns out it's even a prayer. By the way, the second half of Hamilton is, you know, an expression of the gospel, really. The prayer is, Lord, this is Hamilton, Lord in hip hop. Lord, show me how to say no to this. I don't know how to say no to this, but the situation's helpless. Her body's screaming, hell, yes. No, show me how to say no to this. How can I say no to this? (sighs) Who hasn't asked that question? And then there's a whole section of Hamilton's life getting destroyed. And then the Gospel, really, you know, Hamilton says, I brought the kids to church every week. And then Hamilton experiences the unimaginable, which is forgiveness and the loss of his son. Ah, the difference grace makes, our theme for the year. And it's grace that schools this path in us of no and yes. Grace, we are learning through the series, is unconditioned. We do nothing to deserve it. The gift is freely given without station or goodness or usefulness or gender without regard to worth. That's what I was responding to when I became a grace junkie. And it's good news. After all, Jesus Christ, verse 14, gave himself for us to redeem us from all our wickedness, of which I have met much. And he did this, says the Apostle Paul, while we were still his enemies. We bask in such love. Grace is the education we need. But as we've been learning over the series, embedded into the gift, is obligation. And so in basking in his grace, we are also transformed over time, as Hamilton himself learned, which is why Paul goes on, and so to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. Amen? Rob put it perfectly two weeks ago, and I'm going to leave him with a final word. He said this on the day when my waiting began, the first symptoms, Sunday, two weeks ago. Listen to this. God's gift in Christ was given in order to transform those who received it and to establish a permanent relationship. The receipt of this gift is necessarily expressed in gratitude, obedience, and transformed behaviour. The grace is free, unconditioned, but it is not cheap, without expectations or obligations. Those who have received it are to remain within it, their lives altered by new habits, new dispositions, and new practices of grace. Let's pray. Father, there's so much morality in our world today and so many people screaming out to do what is right and avoid what is wrong, and yet at the same time there's... uh, so much twists and turns about who's right and who's wrong. Who declares what is right and who declares what is wrong. And everybody deep down in their hearts believing that they are the righteous ones. And other people are wrong. Father, here this morning and every day we want to seek your will, not our own. Your will, not even our society's will. We want to find out what pleases you. What is ungodliness? What are worldly passions? What does it mean to live an upright, self-controlled and godly life? We want that. And we wanna be able to have the power to say no and yes in equal and appropriate measure. And Father, here today we claim grace as your tool, your resource to chisel out in us the life you want for us. And so Father, I pray that you wake us up and then school us, educate us in the way we ought to live. May we re-engage, may we be found wise With oil in our lamp, we pray this in Jesus' beautiful and saving name. Amen.